Welcome to The Castle of Darkness by J.H. Brennan, read by me, Peter, and Matt. When we left our hero, Pip, they had been summoned by a troop of guards on a mysterious errand. And now we enter a strange log castle in the middle of the forest. Welcome to Episode 2 of The Castle of Darkness. The hooves of the horses clatter loudly on the wooden drawbridge before you and your party pass beneath an open wooden portcullis into a stone-flagged yard. This is the first time you have even been in a castle, let alone a log castle. But if you expected hordes of servants, you are bitterly disappointed. The only horde that emerges from a small, curtained doorway in the north wall of the courtyard is a cross-eyed, shambling hunchback in a leather jerkin and tatted leggings. He carries a wicked-looking dagger stuck carelessly in the leather belt around his waist. He is nearly bald and limps on account of his club foot, the left one. His bottom lip hangs. To tell the truth, he looks an awful mess. This creature drags his club foot in your direction, halting just in time to stop your horse shying away in fright and stares up at you for a moment with great, ugly, roomy, squinty eyes, both brown, you can now see. Ah, <laughs> he gurgles after a moment. This be Pip, all right. You lock go now about your lawful business. Right, Igor, says the sergeant-at-arms briskly, obviously scared witless of this creature, but not wanting to show it. He wheels about and the entire armed party rides out of the courtyard across the drawbridge. And behind them, although there is no one about, the portcullis slams down and the drawbridge raises up, leaving you alone with Igor. Down you come, says Igor. Just leave the mare. She'll take care of herself. And since there isn't much else you can do, you climb down from the horse. This way, young pip, this way, horror says Igor, shambling off the way he came, back in through that little doorway in the north wall. You just follow after me. The master wants to see ye. And so forth, rolling like a boat in a swell on account of his club foot. And since there isn't much else you can do here either, you follow him down a gloomy, torchlit corridor, but why don't the torches set the wooden walls alight? Through an arch, along a second corridor, and into a small but well-appointed room, with a table and some chairs, and leather-bound books on shelves around the walls, and a globe of the world near the table, and a map of the heavens on the table, and dividers and compasses and parchment, and a quill-goose pen, and inks and powders and potions and heaven knows what. Not that you're paying much attention to the room, because the strangest thing is happening to Igor. His hump is dropping off, and his club foot is straightening, and he's growing taller and thinner and sprouting long white hair on his head and a long grey beard on his face. And his clothes are changing, the leather jerkin and those ghastly leggings, and his eyes are unsquinting and changing from brown to blue. It is without a doubt the most amazing most miraculous, most magical transformation you have ever witnessed. 
In place of the shambling Igor there stands in this well-appointed room a tall, straight, blue-eyed, grey-bearded old man in a long white robe and pointed hat, both embroidered, incidentally, with moons and stars and suns and planets and uh, other curious symbols. "'That's better,' says the old man, and his voice is dry, not at all like Igor's voice. "'Shape-shifting's always a nuisance, but they expect a man in my position to have servants, even if he can't afford them.' So it's necessary, yes, yes, indeed. He stares at you with those piercing blue eyes. Well, I see you got here. Made it safely. Spell worked. I knew it would. Enjoying yourself, are you, young Pip? Fighting the village boys, all that sort of thing. Good, good. But there's more important work at hand just now. He waves you towards a chair with a short movement of one long bony hand. Sit down. Sit still. Don't fidget. It was in this way that young Pip met one of the oddest individuals ever to walk the face of fair Avalon in the days of King Arthur and the Knights of the Table Round. Although it took Pip quite a time to realise the identity of the old man who could shapeshift into the form of the hunchback Igor, and probably into quite a few other forms, if the truth be known, in fact, poor Pip was so confused the question had to be asked outright. Who are you, sir? And the ancient shapeshifter with the piercing blue eyes said, Me? I'm Merlin, of course. Merlin. Well, there you have it. That explains a lot. Merlin the Welshman. Merlin the Druid. Merlin the Magician. Advisor to King Arthur and any of the knights who cared to listen. The old wise man of Camelot, who lived in a log castle in a clearing in the forest and sometimes lived in a cave, and sometimes in a tree trunk, and sometimes heaven knows where, because you could never find him when you wanted him, so the king used to say. You might wonder what a man in Merlin's position would want with a young farmhand like Pip. You might wonder what would persuade him to send a party of the king's own men-at-arms to fetch such an unimportant individual. But the fact of the matter was, Merlin was a bit daft. Dulali tap, as they say in Yorkshire, by which they mean someone lacking all his marbles. Balmy. Not all there. Nutty. If, if not quite as a fruitcake, at least as a currant bun. In this state, brought on perhaps by old age, or by chasing after young women, for the rumours about his girlfriend were all too true, as history attests, Merlin had formed the strange delusion that Pip was not Pip at all, but a young person from the distant future drawn by magic to inhabit Pip's sturdy body. All nonsense, of course, but when a man like Merlin gets an idea fixed in his mind, the devil himself couldn't shift it. And with this idea roosting in his white-thatched skull, everything that Merlin did next made a great deal of sense, for what he did next was teach Pip the rudiments of magic. Now, pay attention, says Merlin. The king has a problem. At least he will have, even if he doesn't know it yet. Quinevere, the queen, delightful woman, but she's going to be kidnapped. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. He gestures to the parchment on the table, which is covered in calculations and blots. No doubt about it, he says. I worked it all out by astrology. Saturn, Triune, Jupiter, and a very nasty aspect in her rising sign. I don't have to tell you that what that means. It means she's going to be kidnapped. 
soon. Seized, abducted, snatched right out of Camelot or under our very noses, the Queen herself. Dreadful. He walks to a nearby bookshelf and takes down a leather-bound tome, which he opens at page 86. Inside, stuck down rather messily with glue, is a charcoal drawing of a black-haired, black-bearded, black-eyed, and extremely villainous-looking man in black robes, holding a wand. And that, says Merlin, is the rogue who'll do it, Anselm. The one they call the wizard Anselm, although in my opinion he'd be hard put to tell a spell for a mangle. Still, he knows a trick or two, have to admit that. Well now, says Merlin, putting away the book again, we have to do something about it. At least, and here he turns his gimlet gaze on you, Pip, you have to do something about it. I'm too busy. Me, sir, you ask, perhaps a little terrified. Yes, you. Of course you. Why do you think I brought you here all the way from your own time? Just to talk to chickens? Oh no, young Pip. There's a job to be done, and you're here to do it. But at least it isn't difficult. All you have to do is get into the wizard Anselm's dark castle and rescue the queen. Nothing to it for a healthy young person like yourself, as long as you avoid the traps and the monsters. He breeds them, you know, for a hobby, and then lets them wander all over his castle. The smell is dreadful, but you get used to that. Stupid things, monsters, most of them. They shouldn't give you any trouble. Worst that can happen is they'll eat you. He stops, as if he has just remembered something, and then goes on. Oh, yes, you might as well kill Anselm while you're at it. Thoroughgoing nuisance, that man, always blighting people's corn and stealing their pigs and drying up their moats, not to mention kidnapping of queens. So you just you just kill him. Otherwise he'll kill you, of course. He's that sort. He spreads his hands. So you see, it isn't much of a job, really. I'd do it myself if I wasn't so busy. So you just... Cut along now, Pip, and, uh, oh, wait, I forgot something. So saying, Mullen dives beneath the table with a surprising agility for such an old man and drags out a large oak chest bound in iron bands. You'll need this, he says, opening the chest and taking out a sword. This, says Merlin, is the sword Excalibur Jr., a magical blade, Something similar to the one I made for the king, except smaller. When you use this, you only need to roll a four or better to hit somebody. And when you do hit, you can add five to any damage caused. It talks too, although not very often. Calls itself EJ. Merlin plunges back inside the chest. And you'll need this, he says, bringing out a leather jerkin, which rather miraculously fits you to perfection. Looks like leather. Feels like leather, weighs no more than leather, but it isn't leather, it's dragon hide. Don't see too many jackets like this about, young Pip. As good as a suit of armour, this one. Anyone hits you while you're wearing this, and it subtracts four points from any damage they cause you. Four whole points. That can make the difference between life and death. He closes the chest and puts it away, then walks quickly to a shelf and takes down a small casket, from, like a jewel box. From inside, he takes three small blue glass bottles. Now, potions. He hands you the bottles. Keep those carefully. They're 
potions of healing. A secret blend of castor oil and mugwort. Tastes feral, but it restores life points. Swallow one of these and roll two dice once, or one dice twice. And the score shows you how many life points you've got back. I can only spare three bottles, but each contains six doses. Try to stretch them out. He sniffs. Well, now, says Merlin, that's about it, isn't it? He frowns. No, it's not. You are stupid, Pip. You didn't remind me to teach you magic. Won't get far in Wizard Anselm's dark castle without a bit of magic, will you? Let me see your hands. Are you still there, Pip? Wheeling a bit from all of that, no doubt. But still there. Still compass, as they say, mentis. Which is an expression the Romans used to denote that you're still in full possession of your head. Doesn't he go on a bit, old Merlin? The Welsh are like that, of course. The only time they stop talking is when they're singing. Fortunately, Merlin doesn't sing. Better show him your hands, Pip. Otherwise he'll go on at you forever. Bit of dirt under your fingernails, I see, Merlin says. Never mind, you can watch them later, before you meet the king. I did tell you you'd meet the king, didn't I? Well, you will. Just as soon as you rescue the queen and bring her back from Wizard Anselm's dark castle. You'll get to meet the king then, if you're still alive, that is. Might even get yourself knighted, you never know. Now, where was I? Oh, yes, your hands. He stares at your hands for a moment, then goes to the table and dips the goose quill in the ink. Hold still now, he says. Don't fidget. And right there, in the centre of each palm, he draws a circle with a star inside it. Draws it rather well, too. Then, holding your hands tightly to steady them, he draws a second, very tiny circle on the tip of each of your two forefingers. Right hand first, then the left. Now, he says, I'm going to write something down and I want you to tell me if you can read it. With which he tears a piece of parchment off the end of the sheet filled with calculations and writes on it with the quill, then hands it to you. On the piece of parchment he has written the words, Firefinger 1. If you speak the words aloud in answer to his question, turn to 7. If you only nod in answer, turn to 8. <sighs> Peter, so... <laughs> What you're what you're asking me to do is, do I want to be smart or do I want this to be a good story? <laughs> is, I immediately go, Firefinger One. No sooner have you spoken the words Firefinger One than a lightning bolt leaps from the tip of the forefinger of your right hand, scorching Merlin's beard and setting light to one of the leather-bound books on the shelves. Surprising though this may be to you, Merlin seems well used to such emergencies, for he only hurls the contents of the ink pot on the book. To put it out. Now, curiously enough, that was my point, one. That was my one chance to kill Merlin. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Imagine in the corner, there's a stack of other farmhands who have been summoned and have tried to kill Merlin. And... <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are the chosen one. <laughs> Definitely the last one standing. Yeah. There's actually no further instructions in this section, so it doesn't tell you. Having shot a Firefinger out, it doesn't tell you what happens next, so I can only assume that's the end of your story. Wait a second, so you're saying that genuinely Merlin just goes, ugh, well... No, no, I don't think I so. Guess, I guess I it think... happens to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> then that's just the end of the story. You see, says Merlin, this is an important bit of magic I've given you. A spell, you might say. 
every time you say fire finger one, a bolt of lightning will jump from the tip of your right forefinger and hit anything you're pointing at in the same room. All you need to do is point. It never misses. And it causes ten points of damage to anything it hits. Ten? Imagine that. More dangerous than a sword, that is. And if you say fire finger two, the same thing will happen with your left forefinger. He regards you severely. Now, remember two things. The first is that the spell only works five times for each finger. So you have only ten lightning bolts in all. So don't waste them on any nonsense like target practice or showing off. That's the first thing. The second thing, and here his face grows even more grave, if that is possible, is that you must never, never say fire finger one or fire finger two while your hands are in your pockets. Otherwise, you'll do yourself a dreadful injury. <laughs> <laughs> I really to... like the idea that, that all ten of my fingers, you know, so I'll be like, fire finger thumb, fire, yeah. <laughs> fire finger pinky. Yeah. Uh, do I lose a finger every time I do it? <laughs> the listeners at home, uh, <laughs> Peter just gave me the middle finger. <laughs> yes. The lone bony finger comes up and points directly at your nose so that you begin to hope Merlin himself has no lightning bolts concealed in his fingers. But that is not all, young Pip. No, indeed, not by a long chalk. In the palms of your hands you have now concealed two huge magical fireballs. Two only, one in each hand. These are your most powerful weapons. They do 75 points of damage each if they hit. 75, yes. Yes, indeed. That's enough to put paid to old Ansalam, I'll be bound. <laughs> he coughs. The problem is, they don't always hit what you aim at. Have to throw dice. Exactly the way you do when you're fighting. If you can't manage to hit at least a six with the two dice, or one dice rolled twice, then you've missed. You missed completely. Wasted your fireball, and you've only two altogether. So make sure to roll well. You launch your fireball by shouting. Good and loud, mark you. Fireball away! And then you roll your dice to see if it's hit anything. That's the way to do it. So save your fireballs if you can, Pip, and use them on Ansalong, look you, Dybach, says Merlin, lapsing into Welsh in his excitement. At which point in the conversation, or monologue as it might better be described, there is a great commotion outside, like men pounding on the log walls and ringing bells and shouting to get somebody's attention, which is likely exactly what they're doing, since the drawbridge is up and there is no way in. Merlin smiles to himself. There, says he, that will be the king's messengers with the news of the queen's kidnapping. Right on time, according to the ancient pyramidic scrolls, but we're ready for them, eh, Pip? At least you are. I'll just go out and tell them you'll sort it all out. And off he goes, shape-shifting into Igor in the corridor, to tell the king's messengers that Pip, brave Pip, is all prepared to rescue Queen Guinevere from the wizard Anselm's dark castle. And that's where we leave Pip for now, waiting to be summoned to King Arthur's court 
by the news of Wizard Ansalom's treachery. Join us next time as we continue to play The Castle of Darkness by J.H. Renan. <laughs>